because we want to feel secure. We've got locks on our houses. We've got security systems on our houses. We've got locks on our car doors, and we, I like to hear that little beep every now and again whenever I'm walking away from my car, and if I don't hear it, I'm going to stop, and I'm going to turn around and push the button again until the car beeps at me. We like security in our building. We like security for our finances. We like internet security. We like security in our banks. We want to make sure that we have our money in a place that's going to feel secure. We have locks on our doors in our offices. <laughs> You may appreciate this, but Monday morning, this past Monday morning, I was raring to go, and I got up to the office about 7.30, and uh, I, I opened up the door and then got into my office and stuck the key in and discovered the key didn't work. I was locked out of my own office. <laughs> Through rooting around a little bit, I was able to uh, secure that problem, but security is important whenever you're on the right side of it, isn't it? It's no fun whenever you're locked out, or especially when you have to hear about somebody that's violated security. When we talk about covering up things like a scandal, you think about all of the famous names and famous people that have engaged in scandals throughout history. Watergate, Enron, most recently, at least that we've heard about, is a man by the name of Edward Snowden. And you understand security being important, but you also understand whenever it's not there. And it's funny to me that 2,000 years ago, there was a Roman governor who was counseling a group of worried Jews about how to keep a body within the tomb. And in fact, he was so, they, were, uh, they were so concerned, they said, listen, we need, to, we need to do something more about that. And so they approached Pilate and said, listen, this man said after three days he's going to rise again. It's interesting to me that you go back through the teaching of Jesus and he never told them that that directly, but he said things like, well, you destroy this temple, and in three days, I'm going to raise it up, but they got the meaning. They knew exactly what that was re reference to, and so it is that as they talked to Pilate, Pilate gave them this counsel, go and make it secure as you know how. Jews, you understand that there is a security problem that you think there's going to be. You have your own guard. They had some that were assigned to them, and they were able to go and station those guards. And you try and do your best to make sure that this body stays in this tomb. But, of course, we know the rest of the story, as Paul Harvey used to say. We know what happened on that third day that the guards fell down as dead, that the stone was rolled away, and that some of the women that were following Jesus throughout his ministry went in to look and they couldn't find the body. And instead, they ran back to tell the disciples and two of Jesus' most close, uh, closest friends ran in and saw, and then they realized Jesus was alive. It occurs to me that for the last 2,000 years, the adversary, our adversary, has been trying to put Jesus back in that tomb and to make it secure, and to make it secure to the point where you and I behave as if Christ is still there. That you and I behave in such a way that the resurrection doesn't make a difference in our life. And so it is this evening, just for a few moments, let's consider just a few ways that the devil tries to make the tomb as secure as he knows how, but through God's power, we understand the way that it is that we can overcome and we can continue living and declaring our Lord is not here. He is risen. How does the devil try and make the tomb of Jesus secure? Number one, he does so through 
persecution. It seems like this is or was the, the devil's favorite tool in the first century. You find the early Christians suffering again and again and again for their Christian faith. And certainly as time rolls by, 20 years after the resurrection, around the time of the, the Emperor Nero, the mad Emperor Nero, the one that fiddled while Rome burned, and then as it was that uh, fingers began to point in his direction, he turned and he said, no, it wasn't me, it was these Christians. And all of a sudden, he instituted empire-wide or even localized persecution and dragging people from their homes and, and, and put, sewing them up in burlap bags and putting a wild animal in there just to watch it roll around. Or using those Christians and putting them on pikes and, and dipping them in oil and setting them up on, in, his, in his garden and setting them on fire to light Nero's garden. Persecution. And even now, later on into the emperor Domitian, of which John writes the book of Revelation, and he begins to describe in, in, in vivid language and vivid pictures about what it was that the Christians were enduring. And as Jesus talks to those seven churches of Asia Minor, he tells a, a majority of them, listen, you're suffering at this time, but understand that God is in control. And so it is, persecution. Do we face that kind of persecution today? Well, I don't know anybody that's been dipped in hot oil for Christianity recently. Certainly some of those things may go on in other countries. And yes, we may not hear them, but persecution takes on many forms, doesn't it? It takes on the form of maybe social shunning. Somebody that rolls their eyes every time you come around because they know you're a Christian and they turn around to all their friends and say, oh, here comes that Christian. Here comes that Bible thumper. I don't want to listen to that. You keep that Jesus talk out. If you've ever gone door knocking, you understand the, the, the pain of somebody slamming a door in, their, in your face. And understanding for the name of Christ, folks, we are persecuted in different forms, in different varieties. That's part of it. And certainly nobody likes to feel rejected and nobody likes to feel that kind of pain and that kind of hurt and that kind of feeling like we don't. But folks, we don't. Christianity is never going to belong in a world of darkness. We are children of light. And we have a responsibility to behave as children of light. The world's never going to understand that. And so for whatever social acceptance we have, it may be just simply because we're not necessarily shining our light. Something to think about as we fly over that point. But understand, again, the Bible gives us our obstacles, but it also gives us what it is that we use to overcome that obstacle. How do we keep proclaiming faithfully Jesus? We keep this word in mind. In persecution, the word is hope. One of the points this morning we made in the name of Christ, what it is that we hope for. This is not necessarily the same word. The Bible doesn't use the word the same way I might use the word tonight. I hope there's chocolate ice cream after supper tonight. I hope, right? Probably not, but I hope. You understand that there's something that I hope for that may or may not happen. That's not the way the Bible uses the word. The word hope may better be rendered expectation. When we talk about the fact that we face persecution here and now, we also understand the fact that there is something better for us that we expect. I expect that I'm going to sleep in my own bed tonight. I don't hope for that. I expect it. That's the difference. There is an expectation of glory through the name of Jesus Christ, as we talked about this morning. Christ is risen. 
1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, Peter says, Blessed be the God and Father of, of, of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That is, through Jesus not staying in that tomb. And so it is, through our hope, through our understanding, folks, it doesn't matter what we face in this life. And in fact, when we are persecuted, we have reason to rejoice because we're walking in the footsteps of our master. Please don't misunderstand. This is not licensed to go and to engage in whatever social online. It's not, it's not a license to go and to pick a fight with somebody online. And say, oh, well, they're turning on me and I'm obviously persecuted. What this is about is living your faith for Jesus. And understanding that you're standing up and trying to teach people the gospel and try and help them realize, listen, there's something far better that God's got for your life. But it's only through his son Jesus. You need to know him. And when it is that those people turn on you, and when it is that those people say bad things about you, and when it is that those people don't treat you like they ought to, we understand. That's part of the process. That's part of us walking in the footsteps of Jesus. And I think about heaven, the expectation that I'm going to be with my Jesus one day. And even though, as Paul would say, our outward man is perishing, our inward man is being renewed day by day. He says, First, Second Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 16 and 17, Therefore we do not lose heart. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. Folks, the best is yet to be. Don't live your life like the best is right here and now. But understand that we're still expecting something better in the future. Our hope gives us that in the face of persecution. Another way the devil's tried to keep Jesus in his tomb is through this word, word confusion. Word confusion if I were just to go out here on the Graver Road and, and uh, meet any stranger or passerby and say, why did Jesus come to earth? Don't you know the answers to that question will be vastly different. Some people might say that Jesus came for social equality, to make everybody on the same playing field. Some people would talk about uh, uh, Jesus coming and, and righting all social injustice, or somebody would talk about Jesus coming and, and promising the health and wealth gospel, as it's sometimes called. There are some people that would talk about Jesus coming and they would say, oh, he just came to create problems, to create confusion, to create disorder amongst people. Well, when we talk about confusion, it's nothing new. It's nothing new. You remember Paul and the riot at Ephesus? How it was that uh, these silversmiths there of the, of the temple Diana were, were looking at themselves and looking at the God that, Jesus, that uh, Paul was proclaiming. And they began to say, well, this man, this man doesn't proclaim the same God that we do. And the Bible, uh, the Bible says that everybody was confused there in Acts chapter 17. And they came together and they started a riot. And there were some people that were saying this and some people that were saying that because nobody understood why exactly it was that they were against what it was that they were against. Confusion. We live in a world that is religiously confused, isn't that right? As it is, how many church buildings did you pass on the way to come and worship here? Did Jesus come to create that? When I read my Bible, you take a look at John chapter 17, it says that Jesus prayed for the unity of all believers. That's not Jesus, that's not God's will. But why is it that there is a confusion? It is because 
the God of this age, the God of this world has blinded men's eyes from seeing the truth of the gospel, 2 Corinthians chapter 4. And so it is. We live in a religiously polarized world. So the question is, what's the cure for confusion? The cure is maybe a word that you might not necessarily think about. But the cure is this word, the word authority. The word is authority. You fight confusion with authority. Can we understand the Bible alike? I absolutely believe we can. The difference is, is where we're going to start. I can't start where I am and say, okay, well, this is what I understand, what I understand, what I understand, what I understand. And you start over there and you say, well, this is what I understand, and I understand, I understand. And then we just fight it out and see who wins. <laughs> it's not what God wants. But our understanding of the Bible and our understanding of the Bible alike begins and ends, must begin and must end with the authority of Jesus. Matthew 28, verse 18, before Matthew records his ascension and talks about uh, the last words to his disciples, he says, Jesus says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. When Jesus talks in John chapter 12, verses 48 through 50, talking about the fact that, that, uh, that there's going to be nothing else that judges us save the word of Jesus. The words that I have spoken, he says, will, the same will judge him in the last day. I understand that there's not going to be any opinion, personal opinion. There's not going to be any uh, following of my parents or my grandparents or anything else. My elders, my preacher, our teachers, they're not going to have to give an answer to me or for me on the day of judgment. What I have understood, and the way that I have trusted and followed the authority of Jesus, that's my standard on the day of judgment. And looking into the Word, and Jesus saying, Matthew chapter 7, verse 21, not everybody who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven. That's a frightening passage. But he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. You want to look at Jesus as our example and realize that he always did the things that pleased the Father. Folks, we want to do the things that please the Father, yes? We need to look at Jesus. And we need to follow him and realize he is the beginning and the ending in authority. And that's how we fight confusion. Another way the devil keeps or tries to keep Jesus in his tomb is through this word, compromise. Compromise. We could talk about people compromising their integrity, compromising their holiness. Man like Demas in 2 Timothy chapter 4, Paul says at one time Demas was a valuable worker. You look back through some of the other epistles, but in 2 Timothy chapter 4, just before or the last epistle Paul would write, and the most heartfelt certainly, he would say, Demas has forsaken me. What's the problem, Paul? Having loved this present world. Oh, let me tell you, there's... Devil would like nothing better than for you to compromise your integrity, to just fudge on this one little thing. You know what? It's just a little white lie. You know what? It's just one little computer trip. You know what? It's just one little idle word of gossip. But folks, we need to maintain and instead hold fast to our integrity. We could talk about people compromising with regard to Scripture. This goes back to the previous point we made, compromising in Scripture as Paul would say, or Peter would say in that, uh, that time, 2 uh, Peter chapter 3 and verse 16, he would talk about the fact that some of the writings of Paul were hard to be understood, which some men twist to their own destruction. Why would they do that if they're trying to compromise? 
There's compromises in leadership sometimes. That's why Paul, when he was weeping with the elders of Miletus, the elders of Ephesus in Acts chapter 20, you remember that he mentioned to them and said, listen, after I'm gone, there's going to come in savage wolves. Where? Among yourselves, among the eldership. He would talk about it in 2 Timothy chapter 4 and talk about how there was some going to come a time, Timothy, whenever men would not endure sound doctrine, but after their own lust would they heap themselves teachers having itching ears or wanting their ears to be tickled, as one version says. Compromise. We don't want to hear the truth anymore. Tell us stories. Tell us things that will make us feel good. Tell us things that will make us laugh. Let's compromise about this. Folks, understanding. Compromise changes the message of the gospel. Compromise changes in understanding and tolerating sin. How do we fight it? How do we fight it? How does God give us to overcome? God gives us to overcome through conviction. Conviction. Jude would say, contend earnestly for the faith, which was once for all delivered. Contend earnestly for the faith. What does that mean? That means whenever we're tempted to compromise, we need to go back to book, chapter, and verse. We need to go back to the authority of Jesus and say, what does the Word say? What is it that God wants us to do in this situation? How does He want us to behave? What is it that we can do that's going to be pleasing to Him or glorifying to Him? I know what I want. I know the will that I have, but I am surrendered to the will of God, and that's what I want to follow every single day of my life. I am convicted. I want to continue standing for what it is that I stand for. And I want to stand up and fight for the things that the Holy Spirit has revealed. Folks, we don't lay our arms and down our arms in battle. But here's the thing. We live in a world that's built on people wanting to compromise. In this postmodern society, you realize there's no such thing as truth anymore, at least in the minds of most people. And how it is that they say, well, listen, you believe what you want to believe, and I'll believe what I wanted to believe, and we'll just go on and everything will be all right. Just, 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 just let it lie, right? But it's really not that way, because when you really get in and dig, it's more, I want you to believe exactly the way that I believe, otherwise it is that I'm going to, hey, we're back to the first point, persecute you. I'm going to shun you. I'm going to treat you differently. Folks, we can't compromise with the world. We need to be convicted about the things that God has given us. Think about this one. Ignorance. Ignorance. Jesus said, you do err, not knowing the scriptures or the power of God. Matthew 22, verse 29. 2 Timothy chapter 2, and verse 23, Paul cautions Timothy to avoid ignorant and unlearned disputes or foolish and ignorant disputes. Well, what about ignorance just in general? Maybe it is that you or I fall prey to the same temptation over and over and over and over because we don't really realize the power in God's word to help us overcome whatever it is that we're falling to. Maybe it is that we look at ourselves and we say, you know what, I really don't know why I believe what I believe. You know what, I really don't know if I'm going to heaven. I don't really expect to go to heaven it's more that hope as if i've got hope i'm hoping i've got ice cream at the end i hope i go to heaven at the end but i'm just really not sure folks there's a song we sing called blessed assurance blessed assurance 
And every day we live our lives, it shouldn't be ignorance, the fact that I just don't know where I'm going. If you don't know where you're going, get into the book and find out. Because God will tell you. God tells us through it. And we look at questions like, well, I don't know if God really loves me. I've had people that sit across the desk from me and say, you know what? I don't know if God can forgive me for what I've done. Well, why not? Folks, God doesn't want us to be ignorant. God wants us to be assured. And God wants us all to have that blessed assurance, but we have a responsibility to go and to seek it. We fight ignorance, of course, with knowledge. Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 18. He is risen. We have that living hope, as we mentioned from 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 1 through 4. As Paul's telling those Corinthians about their hope and about uh, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, he says, Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which you also received, and in which you stand. There's the conviction by which you are also saved. If you hold fast that word, I preached to you unless you believed in vain. And then he goes back and he recounts the death, the burial, the resurrection. Why is it that we sing the same songs every week? Why is it that we go and we study the same Bible every week? Why is it that we sit and we listen to a gospel message from the, from the, from the pulpit every week? Why is it that we listen to these things, folks? Because we need to be reminded. We need to have knowledge and we need to be people that are in God's word as a lamp unto our feet. And a light into our path. Psalm 119, verse 105. Hebrews 5, 12 through 14 is a cutting rebuke by the Hebrews writer. As he says, listen, by this time, you ought to be teachers. But you need somebody again to have to go back and teach you the first principles of the oracles of God. And you've come to desire milk and not solid food. And he says, solid food belongs to those who are of full age. Who by exercise, have, or by reasonable use, have exercised their senses to discern both good and evil. There is a growing process that happens as Christians, and we never stop growing. <laughs> so we used to sing in VBS, you can't get to heaven on roller skates, unless you skate right below those pearly gates. We can't coast and get into a point where we say, you know what, I know enough, and just keep on coasting. Folks, we've got to grow in grace and knowledge. That's our responsibility. Last one this evening. The word apathy. The word apathy. People who just don't think about, who just don't care. I come, I sit, I listen to the sermon, I sing a few songs, I drop my money in the plate, but you know what? I just can't get motivated. I'm just drifting. I'm, as one man described it, a bolt. I'm just holding down a pew. <laughs> Apathy. I don't feel like doing anything in the Lord's service today. I don't want to do anything in the Lord's service today. And so it is. Christianity just feels empty, boring. I may necessarily be unmotivated to come. I might hear lots of sermons. I might hear lots of Bible classes. But I know I need to change. But I'm just not going to. Apathy. I believe it's one of the most devil's most dangerous tools to keep Jesus from really making an impact in our lives, our personal lives first. We cannot be ignorant of his devices. Second Corinthians chapter two, verse 11. How is it we fight apathy? Folks, we fight apathy with zeal. Zeal. 
the word that you have translated zealous with zeal is the word that carries the idea of being on fire. It carries the idea of being burning in the spirit. There's an apathy you know, that, that's fought only with zeal, that is, fanning the flame. As Paul would say in Romans chapter 12, verse 11, not lagging in diligence, but fervent in spirit. That's the idea of zealous. If you have found yourself to become apathetic, go back to the empty tomb. Go back and look at the evidence for Jesus not staying in that tomb. And then go forward from there and realize the hope that He promises through Scripture and helps us to understand the fact, folks, that we've got a friend that's never going to leave us nor forsake us. One that's there with us to the end of the age. Matthew 28, verse 20. One that's going to help us and to strengthen us as we do what's right. Understand that there's a Christian family that needs service in here. First and foremost, the people that you can serve here and as we lose ourselves and lose our will in his. And as we find ourselves serving him more fervently, more zealously, we'll understand the tremendous task that absolutely needs to be done. I've been, we've been moving boxes for the last two weeks, three weeks, feels like forever, and as one man said, you know, it's kind of like playing Tetris, you know, because here's the boxes we don't necessarily need. And you know what? There's some days that I wake up and I look at the stack of boxes that just need to be moved in the garage. And I'm just thinking, man, I don't know where to start. You know what happens? I don't. <laughs> I'll just do it another day. But you know what happens whenever you actually get in and you say, ooh, you know what? I've been missing this. <laughs> oh, you know what? I've been... Missing, unpacking. Oh, there's that thing that I needed that was last week, right? And there's this other thing. And all of a sudden, I realize the job that starts. And sometimes it is, folks, the only thing that can start zeal is just us getting off the pew, as it were, metaphorically, and just getting busy. Give a widow a card or a phone call. Give somebody that you missed in the assembly a call and say, listen, I missed you. I love you. I want you back in the assembly and see if that doesn't lead to blessings that you didn't expect. Maybe it is that you come up to the building and say, hey, I'm looking to help somebody. What can I do? And we'll give you a job to do. We'll find something for you to do. Maybe it is that there's something that you can render. There is a part that you had to play in the kingdom, in the body. Maybe it is that you've just lost the joy of that and you just surrendered to apathy. Folks, we have a risen Savior we have a Savior that died for us, that was buried in the tomb, but then stayed in that tomb and came out of that tomb, not for us to be apathetic, folks, for us to be on fire, for us to be zealous for good works. And that's our responsibility every single day. And as we live, there is a lost and dying world that so needs to hear the message of Jesus. That Christ is not in his tomb, the way we talked about this morning with Muhammad or Buddha or David, but we understand we serve a living Lord. We serve a risen Savior. And folks, that ought to make a difference in our lives. Open your songbooks, please, to the song that Troy announced for the invitation song. Christ is not still in his tomb. 
and it will stand that we will all stand before the great white throne judgment. We must all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And understanding, folks, that one day I'm going to be called an account for how it is that I faithfully proclaimed the message, both in word and in deed, of the risen Christ. I bear responsibility for that, and so do you. If it is that you haven't been living that way, what's keeping you from it? What is it that is keeping you from faithfully proclaiming or living as if Christ has not made a difference in your life? I hope it is that you'll consider those things carefully and you'll make the changes that need to be made. But if it is that you're here in this evening and you're not a Christian, we want you to become more than anything. In fact, our Lord so wanted you to become reconciled to God. He paid the price for you. And so it is through faith in Christ Jesus through the belief that he is the Son of God, through confession of his sweet name, that I believe Jesus Christ is the Son of the living God. Through understanding that that requires a repentance from your sins, Acts chapter 2 and verse 38, that is a U-turn. That is, I'm not going to live the way that I've been living. I'm going to resolve to go God's way for the rest of my life. That's repentance, and I'm going to make the necessary changes in my life. I'm going to get that sin out of my life as much as I can. Through New Testament water baptism, you bury the old man, the new man is raised to walk in newness of life, just like Christ. Acts chapter, or excuse me, Romans chapter 6, verses 3 and 4. Are you ready to make that step this evening? We're ready to help you in whatever way that we can as we stand and sing our invitation song.